Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 368, The Prince's Punishments. Right then folks, we are back. We are back to old England and to the events of the 1630s. We are back, baby. Or at least we are in part, but actually, if I may beg a boon, as we sail back from the Americas, a green island appears first in our way, and I might start with said Emerald Isle first just a tad further west than old Blighty, because, as I believe have been mentioned, probably ad nauseam by now, we are talking about the wars of three kingdoms here. So let us three kingdom together, shall we? As I believe I have often remarked, the Stuart kings did not have an easy task, let's be fair. Each of their three kingdoms had their own neuroses and peculiar problems and characteristics, and often these would be directly in opposition and also in flame the situations in their sisters. And Ireland was, of course, no exception. And in Ireland, even more than Scotland, Charles's dad had handed down, father to son, a small, heat-sensitive thermonuclear device ready to go off at any moment in the form of the Protestant plantations in Ulster. The situation was already complicated. You are comfortable, I would expect, with the traditional division of Ireland into the Catholic Gaelic Irish who constituted about three-quarters of the population. The Old English, also fiercely Catholic, the usually wealthy descendants of Norman conquering families, and the New English, fiercely Protestant new arrivals from England, mainly in the pale around Dublin, but also in Ulster. Well, now we have a new element to add. Presbyterian Scots among the settlers of Ulster. Keeping all those groups happy would have been the task of Solomon, or Hercules, depending on the approach taken. In the 1620s, further fissures appear, which will continue to be relevant. It might be thought that the Catholic Gaelic Irish and the Old English, both Catholic of course, would pull together. There was a little bit of indication of this, because it happened to a degree with intermarriage, but only to a limited degree. The English attitudes toward Ireland were continually racial. They considered the Gaelic Irish way of life backward and barbarous, and the Tudors and James sought to civilise them, in inverted commas, namely to make them British. That kept the rift between the Old English and Gaelic Irish nice and fresh, and with deep irony, the sad kind rather than the funny kind, it was enhanced by the Catholic Church in the 1620s and 30s, since after the Counter-Reformation, he did not really approve of the way things religious were carried on in Ireland. I think that's happened before, almost a millennium ago, don't you? That does appear odd, because actually, despite the headline of Protestant persecution, the Irish Catholic Church was in rude health. 
In practice, persecution was episodic at best, and the people were well served by plenty of priests, but the local Irish custom was very different to international Catholicism, Tridentine Catholicism after the Council of Trent. Irish localism had a preference for the regular clergy, like monks, rather than the secular clergy, like priests, and the Franciscans were particularly supportive and popular. The spearhead of the Reformed Catholicism came with the Jesuits. Now, the youth of the Old English were often educated not in Ireland but abroad, in Spain and elsewhere, and so they came back fired up with the new ways, while the Gaelic Irish stuck to their old ways. So, the Vicar General of Armagh, David Roth, acknowledged as the virtual leader of the Catholic Church in Ireland, spoke of the local Gaelic Church in words that are horribly similar to the language of the English in their civilising mission, writing that the Catholic Church should eliminate barbarous customs, abolish bestial rites, and convert the detestable intercourse of savages into polite manners and a case for maintaining the Commonwealth. The point of all this is that here is another point of difference that helped maintain fishers even in Catholic Ireland. It would take some mighty force to see the world in the same way. Charles, though, did have one thing going for him. What several of these factions did agree on was a reverence for the monarchy. And it is in the monarchy that the Old English in particular sought to rely to maintain their position, freedom and influence. Parliament and Irish Privy Council might once have been where they could look, but as we've seen in Elizabethan days, the Dublin government had become dominated by the New English. And in 1613, James had packed the Irish Parliament so that in a complete reversal of the population profile, Protestant MPs outnumbered Catholics. For the Old English, then, direct access to the king was critical. Access was all the more important because as English common law was applied in Ireland, many landowners found themselves being challenged as to the validity of their title to their land. And the Dublin government was not much given to resisting this opportunity for to extort money, land and opportunities. The fortunes of the Old English, then, were intimately tied up with the fortunes of the Stuart monarchy, who could give them and assure title to that land. And they struggled with all their might to convince the Stuarts that their Catholicism was at no way in odds with their loyalty to the king. In the late 1620s, they were helped by the need of Charles's government for money to fight their wars, and at the 1626 Parliament in Ireland, there appeared to be a way forward. Catholic peers drew up a petition for matters of grace and bounty, which became known as the Graces. And they put a team of 11 together to visit Charles. Eight Catholics, three Protestants. And with Charles, they actually hammered out a deal. In return for 51 Graces given by the King, they would agree to taxation of £120,000. These 51 graces majored on religion and land rights and therefore illustrate the main concerns of the Old English. So, for example, one was that legal challenges to their land rights would not be pushed back further than 60 years and so it put a limit on it. And also, the Catholics would only need to take an oath of allegiance to the monarchy to take office, not an oath of supremacy. Well, why is that any better? I hear you ask. Well... The oath of supremacy 
required recognition of the king as head of the church, which of course he was not. It was the Pope. So this is one of those moments, and there are a few, where you think Irish history could have taken another, a better path. But it was not to be. The deputy of Ireland was Viscount Falkland. His son, by the way, the new Viscount Falkland to follow, was a great friend of Ben Johnson and all that, and would be a moderate advisor to the king. So you'll hear the name again. But Falkland Senior, as deputy of Ireland, failed to bring the graces to Parliament to be passed, and then peace meant that the pressure for money was less important, and so the graces disappeared. The Protestant Church of Ireland went potty anyway against the graces, angry their position was being undermined. The sum total of all the fire and the fury was that, despite having paid half the money, all that happened was for some of the graces to be introduced by royal prerogative. Now, you might think this is fine, or at least something, but really it wasn't. Not only was this partial, it did not give the legal recognition needed by Parliament to stop unwanted Dublin challenges to land title. It was, in a word, not good. Two words. Well, their matters rested. Despite the multiple issues, there remained some things to give the old English heart. As we have seen, Charles was more worried about radical Calvinism than he was about Catholicism, and that implied in Ireland too, especially to the Ulster Presbyterian Scots. The relative lack of persecution, or at least its sporadic nature, meant that the old English comfortably pursued their seigneurial version of Catholicism away in their halls, and actually masses were often openly held in Dublin. The old English were embedded in towns as well as country, and in the growing trade with England of cattle and in hides in particular which helped their finances. Meanwhile, many found their future outside Ireland, some in Britain, others the continent, and yet more in the Thirty Years' War. Yes, we've talked about Scots and English going to the continent to fight for the Protestant cause. The Irish were equally enthusiastic in fighting for the Catholic, and maybe 32,000 of what were called idle swordsmen would fight for Catholic armies. When they returned, they would form a militarised corps imbued with the principles of the Counter-Reformation. Watch this space. And anyway... Maybe Charles's new Lord Deputy of Ireland would set things straight. Aha! A new Lord Deputy. Well, who could that be? His name, ladies and gentlemen, was Thomas Wentworth, a bluff Yorkshireman, whose name I think you will recognise. Now, you might remember that Tom Wentworth had been a right royal pain in the right royal backside once upon a time, so much so that Charles had targeted him with a promotion to keep him out of the 1626 Parliament, kicked him upstairs, that sort of thing. But Charles also recognised a man worth winning over, so he flattered, he promoted him in other ways, and it worked. Wentworth came over to the royal side, and not just for the cookies. And to be fair, if you wanted to have someone on your side in a brawl in the local, where the local hard man after ten pints is angry about your outrageous three-dart finish from 158, and has a smashed beer glass held lightly but firmly in his right hand, Thomas Wentworth was not a bad choice. Thomas Wentworth will one day be promoted to the Earl of Strafford, so it might be worth just giving the lad a brief bio. And actually, there's a very fine portrait of him, which I've put on the episode post on the website. From this, the historian Jonathan Healy, in his new book, The Blazing World, very good book, by the way, describes him as having the hard stare of the zealot 
and the busy diligence of a particularly determined accountant. The thing about Thomas was that he was combative, even fighty. I'm not going to say this is a feature of your average Yorkshireman, because that, my friends, would be a stereotype and most unfair. So I'm not going to say it. Scrub that from the record, please. But the Wentworth and the Savile families, for example, had all manner of argy-bargy over local supremacy and control of the selection of the Member of Parliament. The way one contemporary would put this personal characteristic, with classic understatement, was... Nature had not given him generally a personal affability, although one of his friends claimed he was sweet in personal conversation. So, suspecting Thomas would be as ardent a defender of royal rights as he had been of parliamentary rights, Charles brought him into the tent, doing that thing people do in that slightly unpleasant metaphor, instead of standing outside and doing that thing inwards that they speak about in that slightly unpleasant metaphor. In 1628, he made him Baron Wentworth. In 1629, President of the Council of the North and a member of the Privy Council. And Charles's instinct was good, in the sense that while arguing for the petition of right, Wentworth demonstrated his fightiness on behalf of Parliament, but it did not for a moment suggest he was anti-royalist, no ma'am. He was just super keen for the King to behave according to his understanding of the Constitution. So, he was more than content to serve the king according to the idiom of his class. In July 1631, then, Charles appointed Wentworth to be the Lord Deputy of Ireland, although he didn't actually arrive there until 1633. Just by way of a plot spoiler, Thomas was to deliver a very impressive achievement during his tour of duty. He was clear about his aims. He was going to make Ireland financially self-sufficient. He was going to bring the Irish church into closer alignment with England and continue the process of anglicising the Irish, or civilising them, as he would have put it. So, fair dues, he's aiming high, the lad. Irish debt stood at £76,000 at the time, and there was a sense of incipient danger. A member of the Irish Privy Council had recently written that the Irish Protestants could expect to perish in our plantations by fire and sword if they ever take up arms meaning if the native Irish took up arms. And as for the church, well, we've just heard how well that was going. On the church thing, actually, he had a double whammy on his hands. Not only was support for the Catholic Church still rock solid, but the Protestant Church of Ireland was itself something of an outlier, being even more Calvinist in tone than the Church of England had ever been, and not at all active in evangelising the Catholics. Wentworth's approach was to divide and rule in a sense, not necessarily to divide, but to have a policy specifically designed for each group so that they could be manipulated accordingly in line with his boss's requirements. Let us start with religion. Now, Wentworth was a good pal of William Lord. They wrote to each other frequently and had a tendency to gossip. They had a pet name for Treasurer Weston, for example. So, it was Wentworth's fervent wish to bring the Church of Ireland into line with that of England by imposing the canons of 1624 on their necks and the 39 Articles. Both of these things were very strenuously resisted by James Usher, who was the primate of all Ireland as Archbishop of Armagh. The convocation of 1634, when this was supposed to happen, was therefore deeply controversial. In the end, irresistible force met immovable object, resulting in a small twister that was a new set of Irish canons. 
Even this wasn't really acceptable to the Church of Ireland, and Usher led a campaign of passive disobedience and non-compliance, or a go-slow. Given that the canons included things such as communion tables at the East End and the Book of Common Prayer, these new canons outraged the Scottish settlers of the North and the new English of the Pale in spades. The Catholic Old Irish were, of course, not averse to the arrival of Arminianism, nor to the Church of Ireland having its wings trimmed, and they were not averse also to Wentworth seeming to be rather nice to them. The foot was lifted from the pedal of recusancy penalties for a while, and soon after his arrival he actually met the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, and was making positive noises about giving statutory approval to the much-longed-for graces. The graces would give legal underpinning to some limited element of toleration, but crucially, to land rights, which I know I have mentioned before, but it's always good to punch the bruise. They should have realised that, as I have learned in life, when someone is being unusually nice to you against the run of play, it could just be that they're after something. But look, they were desperate for the confirmation of those graces. So, when Wentworth proposed the Parliament, yep, they were up for it. Charles, on the other hand, was horrified. Parliament, fall at a word. But Wentworth convinced the boss that it was in fact ten, and that he was on top of this. It wouldn't be like England. Charles let his deputy have his head. But you can be sure his finger was held lightly but firmly over the buzzer, the buzzer of dissolution. The game was as before, just in case you find yourself leading a medieval parliament, do not in any circumstances fulfilled. You grant me subsidy, then I'll grant you grievances line, not a winner. In a parliament still heavily skewed towards Protestant members, the old English, unfortunately, went along with granting six subsidies to the king before the grievances were sorted. And when it came to confirming the graces, well, Wentworth refused to confirm the crucial one, the one that confirmed land rights. The old English members felt betrayed, tried to disrupt the rest of Parliament, but the damage was done. The king had his subsidies. They did not have their graces. Job, from the Wentworth point of view, done. Now Wentworth was no lover of Catholics, but it's quite likely he was happy to see most of the graces confirmed, but his priority was to make Ireland self-financing, and to do that, he needed that thing about confirming land rights in his hand as a weapon. So after Parliament was done, Plan B emerged. Well, Plans B1 and B2. Yes, old English Catholic landlords, yes, you can confirm your land rights through me, Lord Deputy of Ireland, don't you have to go all the way to England, but it'll cost you, pony up, form an orderly queue. At the same time, he pursued restoring alienated church lands that had been acquired by the old English landlords, in line with the Laudian policy of getting the church onto a firmer financial footing, so as he gave with one hand, he took with the other. And then, while we're at it, there's a new plantation scheme for you all, in Connacht province. It'll be based on surrender and regrant. so you give us your land with dodgy, not issued under English law titles, you'll get three quarters of the land back, with bulletproof title, and we'll keep the rest for the plantation. Sweet. Not a popular Polish policy with either the Old English or the Gaelic Irish. Aware that he had not yet antagonised everyone, Wentworth turned to the plantations of the north. I think it is fair to say that Wentworth was not a fan of the Protestant settlers, a company of men the most intent upon their own ends that I ever met with, he was to say. The issue for him was that the settlers had never filled their end of the bargain in terms of the amount of investment and in generating the right number of settlers. 
So the undertakers of the scheme were pursued now to complete their obligations, and none more so than the City of London. Now, as far as London was concerned, this accusation was received just as it would be by a Premier League footballer being delivered of a yellow card. Arms wide, jaw dropped, outrage expressed in furious protest. As far as they were concerned, they'd been forced into investing a bundle and they'd been forced into it for naff or return, most unbusinesslike. And yet now in 1631, they found themselves referred to the Star Chamber, a commission of inquiry set up, and darn me, would you Adam and Eve it? They were fined £70,000 and forced to surrender their patent to Londonderry with a call, 40,000 acres of land reverting to the Crown. Nice work if you can get it. Tyranny, what tyranny? In 1639, Charles set up a commission to manage the land, with resulting rent-racking to bring the money in. Now London, as we will explain, would be critical in the coming troubles. And they would not forget this outrage when choosing sides. And then finally, the Ulster plantations were anyway a running sore for native Irish, and the rent-racking of the new commission did not help. So, I spoke earlier of an impressive achievement for Wentworth. His achievement was to have antagonised every element of a notably complex Irish society and given them common cause. And yet, interestingly, he often gets quite a good write-up from historians as an effective, firm and unbiased administrator who managed an Ireland that appeared to be a country mile from any trouble. Its finances more secure, administration in control, reform in progress. There are a few broad reasons for this positivity. Wentworth was indeed unbiased, but it is the kind of balance that goes with the old gag. You know, I like Emma, she's very balanced, she's got a chip on both shoulders. No single one of the groups felt the Crown was favouring another because they were all hacked off. Secondly, Ireland, unlike England really, was having a bit of an economic boom. Things were good under English rule, financially speaking. Population was rising, reaching a peak of about one and a half million in 1641. Annual trade customs were rising, partly from Wentworth's administrative efficiency, but also increasing exports to England, especially in hides, livestock, butter and barrelled beef, and also in manufactures such as linen and wool. Urbanisation was increasing. Dublin had hit around 20,000 people. Galway, Waterford and Limerick were expanding. Cork now had five and a half thousand people. And those benefits were not just to the new English and the planters. Old English were doing well too. Catholics had less to worry about in terms of persecution, and priests attended to their congregations pretty much unmolested. And then finally, Ireland, as far as Charles was concerned, was a success story. In 1638, he'd actually contributed £10,000 to the royal treasury, and Wentworth claimed the Irish treasury was stuffed with 100,000 quid. And meanwhile, no news of angry responses to his government had reached home when with made darn sure of that, he had carefully and forcefully prevented the old English nobility from making representation direct to the king. This, of course, was another source of worry for the old English, for whom, as we said, access to the king was critical for their security. So, when the balloon went up, and the balloon will go up, ladies and gentlemen, everyone will be a little surprised. No one will see it coming. I had a mate at work called Andy, once upon a time, still a good friend, and I said admiringly to one of his team how incredibly calm and in control he always looked. Said team member laughed, harder than I thought quite decent. 
actually, and said, Oh, it's like a ducky's hand. It looks calm, majestic, slightly podgy on the surface. Underneath, his little legs are paddling like fury. Not an entirely suitable analogy for early 17th century Ireland, but I offer it up to you. Calm on the surface, boiling with nervous energy underneath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oakley Doakley, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Across to London we shall fly, completing our journey home from the Emerald Isle. It is summer, 30th of June, 1637, and there is a right old rumpus, let me tell you, a right old rumpus and make no mistake. Crowds of people cramming towards a grim instrument of public punishment, the pillory. There were numbers of places for pillories in London in 1637. You might be taken to Tyburn in Westminster, or Old Palace Yard, or Cheapside, Cornhill or the Old Bailey in London, or at Charing Cross somewhere in between. Anyway, there is a maimed man standing by the pillars, probably at Cheapside, because he'd been brought from the Tower. And as a marketplace, there are plenty of people able to get a sight of the condemned man and revel in his humiliation and shame for betraying society with his deviance. Pour encourager les autres. He's accompanied by two other condemned, but it is his turn for punishment to be visited on him first. He is in front of an enraged crowd, but enraged by his punishment, not enraged by his social deviance and what he had done, but for the indignity of his punishment and its unworthiness. William Prynne, for it is he, and his companions, had been condemned to be fined a completely unrepayable £5,000 each, to have their ears cut off, their noses slit, I mean yuck, and to be branded on their cheeks, SL for seditious libel, and then thrown into prison for life. Before punishment, though, they get to address the crowd, presumably to give them an opportunity to confess themselves unworthy sinners, but nothing doing. They all three will switch the amp up to 11 harangue setting. William Prynne's blood is up. Before the executioner starts to do his bloodletting, of course, he shouts his defiance to the crowd, declaring that, If the press were open to us, we could scatter this kingdom about the ears. He compared the severity of his punishment to good Queen Bess's time, unfavourably, I should point out. He called for the crowd to resist the tyranny of which his punishment was such a dreadful example. Stand firm for the cause of God and his true religion, and that they should not deliver themselves into perpetual bondage and slavery. When he'd finally run out of words, and the executioner came forward to do the deed, Prynne, with some impressive sense of drama for a man who'd written so furiously against the evils of theatre, declared, I have chosen 
Rather to fear the fire of hell than fire on earth. Come burn me, come scorch me. I bear in my body the mark of the Lord Jesus. Okay. Rather grim quote coming up if you'd like to turn away to a safe space. Okay. So, the burly executioner did his job as burly executioners do. That is their thing, to be burly and grim. There is a lot of blood. Here is the slightly gruesome commentary of an onlooker. I should say that the executioner had clearly not his completed his college day release NVQ level 1 in public maiming. Then Mr Prynne's cheeks were seared with an iron made exceeding hot, which done, the executioner cut off one of his ears and a piece of cheek with it. And then, hacking the other ear almost off, he left it hanging and went down. But being called up again, he cut it off. Some members of the crowd came forward to dip the resulting precious blood in their hankies, for which purpose, of course, a hanky is perfectly designed. One man came forward and offered to hold the pillory a little higher to ease Prynne's pain. It was becoming clear that this piece of exemplary punishment designed to terrify the crowd was not having the desired effect. It might encourage Les Ultra in an ultra direction. Now that was bad. But it was about to get worse. The three offenders were dispatched to three corners of the kingdom to live the rest of their lives in prison. Carnarfon, Launson and Lancaster. And without the prospect, incidentally, of a nice parole board a few years down the line. Their journeys turned into processions. Word spread like wildfire they were coming, and people turned out along the way to cheer, wave, shout them encouragement. In the words of expert media executives in the Stuart version of sharp, shiny suits, ankle stranglers, winkle pickers and purple glasses, it was a public relations disaster, darling. William Lord once said, rather grimly, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. But from Ireland, Thomas Wentworth, with Yorkshire bluntness, gave an uncompromising verdict on all of this. When a prince loses the force and example of his punishments, he loses with all the greatest part of his dominion. Now look, if you are looking for possible uncomplicated heroes, I doubt it would be William Prynne. Not sure there is such a thing as an uncomplicated hero anyway. Discuss. Chat GPT. Are there any heroes anymore? A Puritan so dry it could turn the Pacific into the Sahara. A man given to writing long diatribes against, well, pretty much any kind of fun, to be honest. Not the sort of bloke you called Prinny in an affectionate way while slapping him heartily on the back before downing the next pint of rebellion ale. So, how did we get to this? And what does it all mean? How did Prynne get to be the toast of the people? And before Prynne writes me a letter in the strongest possible terms, I should say toast of the singed bread variety rather than the alcoholic, although that doesn't really work. Sorry, Prynne. We have already noted, I think, that one of the reasons why Lord's reforms were so divisive was not simply their nature, but because, for once, they were driven through with determination. That the leeway and flexibility that had marked local religious observances were now nailed down. For Charles... This was all about enforcing the message. To do this, he had three tools. The first was the High Commission of the Church to enforce church discipline. I would like to say that no one expects the High Commission, but sadly by 1640, they did. It is not necessarily that the High Commission 
threw a lot of ministers out of the church for non-observance of the 1624 canon, although about 30 were, it was more the constant interrogation of their practice, the prosecution of infringements, the fear that accompanied that kind of constant harassment. Now look, this was no kangaroo court. It took its procedure seriously, and it is very worth noting that Charles tried to operate within the law. But combined with the unpopularity of the Laudian reforms, its zeal struck fear of tyranny into the hearts of ministers and congregations and inflamed divisions. So 115 ministers in the Diocese of York alone found themselves hauled up in front of the High Commission for transgressions with resulting fines. It gives us a feeling of the times that Laudian supporters tried to stop people complaining of prosecutions, which they saw as justice, by using odious nicknames of tyranny and persecution. Which means they did. If you fell foul of the commission, punishment could be severe. Peter Smart preached against innovations and was forced to answer articles against him on oath. We'll hear of that again, but answering articles on oath essentially means that the accused were forced to potentially incriminate themselves. He was deprived of his living, degraded, fined and imprisoned. The laity suffered as well, for refusing to kneel maybe, or absenting themselves from church because they disapproved of Laudian ceremonies. Possibly worst of all of these, maybe even worse than the fear, was the knowledge in communities that complaints from ordinary people would be followed up and many of these prosecutions were initiated by local people. So if you disagreed with your fellow's religious views, or just didn't like the cut of their jib and were out to get them, here was a way. It was deeply divisive, and spread an atmosphere of distrust. The second tool, then, was censorship, or more broadly, to control the public sphere, debate, and expressions of views deviant from the royal line. Charles famously communicated little with his public after the last Parliament, but he and Lord did encourage a slew of Arminian publications. Despite the law that they had made against disputatious religious tracts, they then did not prosecute those, while at the same time they did crack down on similar Calvinist tracts. They wanted to operate within the law, essentially, or be seen to, but not in the sense of allowing even-handed debate, and few were fooled. In terms of censorship, Charles had two tools. The first was pre-publication licensing. You had to be approved before publication by High Commission, Star Chamber or Privy Council. The second was the law of treason and seditious libel after the fact. In the 1630s, both of these were interpreted more widely than ever before. A greater range of books were deemed to fall foul of sedition or religious policy. So sedition, for example, was now interpreted not just as advocating rebellion, but opposing a religious policy. Whereas the Elizabethan church had focused on those outside the Church of England, Catholics or Protestant separatists, the Stuart monarchy prosecuted those within the Church of England as well. It's been calculated then that censorship was imposed more than five times more frequently under the Stuarts than it was under Elizabeth. In addition, the government was ready to go to greater levels of violence to silence disputes, raiding bookshops, destroying presses. Complete control was impossible, but the effort to do so was in itself terrifying. Which brings us then to Star Chamber. Hands up, those of you who have heard of the Star Chamber as an infamous tool of repression. Hmm. 
I'm interested because when I roll out, it was a sort of symbolic. Anyway, Star Chamber did not start as such, not in intention back in the day when Walls's fertile mind gave it birth. For him, it was all about equity and justice. We're all proud of common law, but there's no denying that the system of justice was jolly complicated. The court of Star Chamber was a way of cutting through that. It was not subject to common law, but to the concept of equity under the king's prerogative. So at its best, it provided fast, much cheaper and fairer justice, a way to prevent the rich and powerful buying their way through the legal system, intimidating juries, witnesses and judges, such as one Sir John Rouse, a JP who had wrongly condemned two women to be imprisoned and whipped in 1628 through the courts. He was then prosecuted and condemned by Star Chamber. Right to the end, the judges and privy councillors who peopled it took its role and procedures seriously. But, 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 in the end, it was outside the processes and controls of common law and therefore subject to manipulation in the wrong hands. If you were a king, out to make a very public and very severe point so that no one could avoid it, this was the tool to use. And it could be used and was used, as Tim Harris has described it, as an instrument of terror. Punishments could be much harsher than common law, although I believe didn't include execution, but it could still be used to visit punishments which were not penal, proportionate to the crime, but exemplary, to make a point that if you cut out rough or the king doesn't like the cut of your jib, you are not safe. This could be you. And so although it continued its work in favour of the poor or victims of legal aggression, there were a series of very high-profile cases designed to keep people in their lanes and their mouths shut. Alexander Leighton, in June 1630, was prosecuted for criticising bishops, ordered to pay a ludicrously high fine of 10,000 quid, degraded, sentenced to stand in the pillory, whipped, have his ears cut off, nose slit, and had SS, Sower of Sedition, branded on his cheeks, and spend a life in prison. And it was, of course, by Star Chamber, that William Prynne and his colleagues had been successfully prosecuted. We're going to hear a lot about honest John Lilburn, levellers and all that. John was the son of minor gentry in the northeast of England and one of three brothers. The three brothers Lilburn would be an interesting case study of how the Civil War divided families. The eldest, Robert Lilburn, would be a Cromwellian soldier and regicide. The youngest, Henry, started parliamentarian and defected to the Royalists in 1648. John Lilbourne's name will live forever as the founder of the first genuinely radical political movement preaching equality, social justice and political equality in world history. OK, that was me making wild, unsubstantiated claims. Will it? Is it? Was it? I must have missed someone in a far-off land, so do put me right. Answers on a postcard. Whether or not... We can hit the heights of good, better, best. The political ideas that came from the levellers' movement are extraordinary and the start of modern politics, to my mind. And in absolute line with that, John Lilburn was a gobby, fighty northerner, cussed beyond the point of infinity. So stubborn, it would make a mule look flighty. He'd have driven me up the wall. He said of himself, he wasn't the dronest boy at school. I have no idea what this means, and nor, frankly, does the OED. But I'm going to guess it means he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, or maybe the hardest working, some northeastern dialect word. 
Well, whatever dronest means, he wasn't it. He came to London as an apprentice and drank deeply of the wine of Puritanism. Sorry, the nice cup of tea of Puritanism. To the point where he flirted with separatism. He knew very well Dr John Bastwick, who was punished next to William Prynne. Bastwick already admired the young man's energy and intellect. Lilburn was there in the crowd as he, Prynne and his colleague were maimed and marched off to prison. Early in 1637, Lilburn was involved in printing his teacher's anti-episcopal books. Given that it was an anti-episcopal, obs, he didn't get away with it. Someone fingered him, he was discovered. To be fair, he was then given the chance to defend himself, first to the chief clerk of the Attorney General, then to the Attorney General himself, Sir John Banks. I do not know what was said, but I suspect, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, did not issue from Lilburn's lips. Then, or ever. So, Star Chamber it was then. In Star Chamber, Lilburn's defence was thoroughly typical of the man. Essentially, it didn't get past stage one, similar to Charles in 11 years' time, really. He refused to take an oath because he argued that as a Christian he could not be forced to take an oath. And then he would not testify, arguing that under common law a defendant could not be forced to incriminate himself. See above. It's thoroughly typical because Lilbourne was not a man to play by anyone else's rules and because he had a touching faith in the rights of free-born Englishmen, as he said. In fact, common law said no such thing. But the fact that he believed it did, and later the fact that he believed Magna Carta promised him all sorts of rights it did not, he would try to move mountains. Such is the power of faith. Here end of the lesson. Now please turn to him. 356. Always wanted to be a minister. Oh well. Well, the grandees of the Star Chamber's collective chin wobbled so much even my granny would have been impressed. They were outraged, scandalised. Well, I never did. And they picked up the book and they threw it at John's head. The crime, and I quote, of insufferable disobedience and contempt. I mean, not just contempt of court, but insufferable contempt of court, I'll have you. That was added to the printing thing. He was sentenced and duly on the 13th of February 1638, a chilly day, I'll be bound. He was taken from the fleet prison and tied, as he would later write, to a cart's arse and towed all the two miles to New Palace Yard in Westminster, being whipped as he went with a knotted rope. There he was put in the pillory. Now look at that point, or well before this, I'd go stum, probably for the rest of my life, but John, of course, vented his fury to the crowd on the injustice of it all until he was gagged. See what I mean? Gobby. When he was gagged, his friends then distributed leaflets to the crowd. When he was in the fleet, he smuggled out writings about his experiences and how thoroughly rotten it all was and how the Episcopal Church was no true church. His experience also gave him confidence. So from the fleet, he wrote... I assuredly know that all the power in earth, yea, and the gates of hell itself, shall never be able to move me or prevail against me. For the Lord, who is the worker of all my works in and for me, hath founded and built me upon that sure and immovable foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. With powder kegs like John Lilburn about, it seems inevitable there would be an explosion. As we have mentioned, 
Tis the time of the Great Migration when many chose to leave. Now Lucy Hutchinson was an English poet and translator who lived through the civil wars and was one of the godly. She married Colonel Hutchison, who was a regicide who would be, although both of them objected to Cromwell's protectorate later. When her husband died in prison in 1664 after the Restoration, she undertook to write a biography of her husband, which is one of the most often used sources to give a flavour of the time. This, then, is how she saw the Carolean prosecution of her fellow Calvinists at this time. The Puritans were more than ever discountenanced and persecuted, insomuch that many chose to abandon their native country and leave their dearest relations to retire into any foreign soil or plantations where they might, amidst all outward inconveniences, enjoy the free exercise of God's worship. Such as could not flee were tormented in the bishop's courts, fined, whipped, pilloried, imprisoned, and suffered to enjoy no rest, so that death was better than life to them. So, a powder keg. But a powder keg, as Guy Fawkes had realised to his destruction, needed a spark. For all the furious words, rebellion was no longer easy in England. Even a hundred years before, or maybe a hundred and fifty, the country would have been full of martial lords with reams of armed tenantry ready to pick up the sword or pike or bow and arrow or whatever and follow the way they were told. England wasn't like that anymore. The elite were thoroughly dainty and civilised, and most couldn't fight their way out of a brown paper bag, or indeed squash the proverbial. They all needed a spark. And the flash of light would come from the north. That's all for now, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this offering. Thank you all for listening. It's always lovely to get your comments and reviews and so on, so keep them coming. And now at last, we head into the maelstrom together. Until next time then, good luck and have a great week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.